Turn, if you would, to the third chapter of John. It's good to have all of you here today. I was expecting about 20, but I hope you all had a good holiday. We, uh, around our house, we got a new puppy and a, uh, and a future son-in-law. My uh, eldest daughter is now officially engaged, so... Yeah, well, that was the order we got them in, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it as a question of which is the... Oh, no. So anyway, we've had an exciting week around our house. Um, it's good to get back. It's good to get back into the study of God's Word. To remind you, we've been working through a series of lessons on questions that Jesus asked people. We started in Matthew with Jesus asking the disciples in the boat, why are you afraid? There's a storm, the disciples are terrified, and he says, why do you have so little faith? Then we moved on to Mark and talked about which is easier, to tell someone your sins are forgiven or to heal them of, in this case, being a paralytic. Well, we know that only God can forgive sin. So what we see was a discussion about whether or not Jesus was, in fact, God. And then the last lesson we did was about John the Baptist. The question was asked to the crowd, what did you go into the desert to see when you went to see John? And Jesus is using this to illustrate the fact that they went to see the prophet, the prophet who was coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And here he is. So, today we're going to look at John chapter 3. You have noticed the pattern, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I know this is subtle, but we'll work our way through it. John chapter 3 is probably one of the more famous chapters in the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16 may be the most famous verse in the Bible. And uh, I really wasn't going to talk about 3.16, but I had to include it, so we kind of sneak it in at the end. Okay? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. This guy is a big deal. He is a Pharisee. Who are the Pharisees? They believed in an afterlife? That is true, as opposed to the Sadducees who didn't. Somebody else. Teachers of the law. A bunch of lawyers, yes. <laughs> what did you say? Legalizers. Come on, somebody tell me what you really feel about the Pharisees. They were opposition to Jesus. In many cases, they were. They were locked in dogma. They were locked in dogma. Normally, when we think about the Pharisees, what comes to our mind is a legalistic, hypocritical facade of goodness wrapped around a heart of who knows what. We need to go back into history and we see that the Pharisaical movement started because after the nation of Israel had been carried off into captivity and they came back to the land and certain people had remained in the land and had married with the locals and were not really that Jewish to begin with and there was all this blending of different things. There were a group of people who looked at all this mess of stuff and said, this isn't right. We need to return to the law that had been given to us by God. And you know what? They were right. They should have done that. So they went back and they took that law that had been given to Moses, and they made their list. Here are the things that we need to do to impress people. I mean, to impress God. Okay? So they came up with their list. 
Then they came up with a li- another list to show how good they are at keeping the first list. And they began to get this reputation of list upon list upon list. They started out with the right idea. We need to be holy. We need to be set apart as God commanded us to do. We need to keep the law that God gave us. And you know what? They should have. In fact, when Christ gets around to that famous chapter where he just blasts the Pharisees, the old seven woes chapter, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, he begins by saying they are the teachers of the law. Listen to them. But don't follow their example, because by example, they are, in fact, whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside is nothing but death. But having said that, there were people who were part of the Pharisee movement who were trying to keep the law of God in all righteousness, Nicodemus was one of those. Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees, but he really was trying to do the will of God. Not only was he a Pharisee, he was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the religious body that would determine what was going on in Jerusalem and in the nation of Israel. The Roman occupiers had allowed the Jewish people to maintain their own rules and regulations regarding religious practice, etc. And it was the Sanhedrin's job to take care of that, to monitor that. So he was, in fact, a bigwig. He was a Pharisee. Paul had been a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, and he was a member of the ruling council. And he comes to Jesus at night. Why do you think he came at night? He didn't want to be seen. That is the most probable answer. Matthew Henry tries to put a good spin on it and said he waited until Jesus had finished the business of the day and came to him when he could have some undisturbed time with him. But even Matthew Henry finally admits down about a page later, this is a kind way of putting this. He was probably worried about what his fellow Sanhedrin members, his fellow Pharisees, would have to say if they knew he was coming to Jesus at night. But you have to give him points for coming to the right guy. I mean, it is better to come to Jesus at night than not to come to Jesus at all. (coughs) So... He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, right there. Rabbi is a um, term for a teacher. It is a term of respect. It is not a derogatory term. He's not setting Jesus into some trap. We will see that later in Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. Nicodemus is not setting a trap for Jesus. He actually does have a certain amount of respect for what he's doing. Let's keep going. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. We had long discussions several, several weeks ago about the miraculous works that Jesus did. And we talked about the fact that the miraculous works were done to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. When John's disciples came to Jesus to ask him, are you the one? Jesus said, wait a minute. And he went and he healed the blind, he healed the sick, he cured leprosy, which happens to be what the prophets had said the Messiah was going to do. He did those things and he turned to the disciples of John and said, go tell John what you've seen. All of these were done to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. So, Nicodemus had seen these miraculous powers. Nicodemus had spent his life hanging around religious people. He had spent his life with the bigwigs of the religious community. And he knew 
that none of them could do any of that. You know what I'm saying? He knew that there weren't any members of that Sanhedrin, religious, pious, hypocritical, whatever you want to call them, there were none of them that could do what Jesus had just done. So he knew Jesus was something special. We know you are a teacher sent from God because no one could do the miraculous signs that you've done. This is a nice introduction. Go ahead. Yes. We know there seems to be a group. There seems to be a faction that understands something is up here. Okay? In reply, Jesus declared. We're beyond that. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, what's the connection between verse 3 and verse 2? What in Nicodemus's introductory statement would lead you, if you were Jesus sitting here, would lead you to utter the comment in verse 2? I mean, in verse 3. I can't think of anything. Nicodemus comes up and he is praising Jesus. Jesus, you're a great guy, you're a great teacher, you must be from God, you're doing miraculous things. And Jesus looks at him and says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. We haven't gotten to that part yet, but you're right. I mean, that is true. Jesus knew... What Nicodemus needed, even though Nicodemus didn't know to ask the right question. In fact, he hasn't asked a question yet. You get the impression he's coming to Jesus to ask a question. And it's like Jesus says, okay, forget the introduction. Let me give you the answer to the question you should be asking, but you're not asking. No one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. Now, how does a good Pharisee, you can put that in quotes, you can say that's a made-up term, how does a good Pharisee get salvation? By doing good? By keeping the rules. If I can keep the rules, I'm in. And primarily, if I can keep the rules better than that guy over there, I can get in. It's very comparison-oriented. As long as I'm better than the vast majority of people, God's going to look on me with favor and God's going to let me in. Salvation, proper relationship with God... For a Pharisee was based on the external keeping of a set of rules, some of which were actually God-given, some of which were actually the Word of God. They ought to have kept them, but they were more interested in the appearance of keeping them than the actual keeping of the rule itself and what was behind the rule itself. What does Jesus criticize them at one point? They tithe the mint. You know, they had these little um, uh, herb gardens that they would do like in their window seals or something. And they'd have, you know, their little herbs growing. And, I mean, we're talking minuscule. But, you know, if you grow some mint and you have ten leaves of mint, you have to tithe one leaf of mint, right? I mean, isn't that right? If you're tithing and you have that, you have... So they would very carefully pick off one leaf of mint and they would tithe it. Voila. And he goes, you're spending all your time focusing on this stuff and you're forgetting charity to your 
brothers and sisters. This is stupid. That's my word, not his. So, to a good Pharisee, salvation, right relationship with God came through the keeping of a list of rules. And Jesus looks at him and said, to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter the kingdom of God, excuse me, you must be born again. Now, I have been going to the church, going to church since the, you know, since I was minus nine months old. Okay, and I have heard this phrase all my life: "You've got to be born again." We oftentimes hear this phrase so often that we begin to lose sight of the impact of what it really means. So we need to kind of sit back and look and get an understanding of how Nicodemus would view this statement. You know, if Nicodemus came to Jesus, his question was probably going to be, well, like the rich young ruler's question, good teacher, you know, tell me the things that I need to do. Tell me how to modify my list so that I can get in. Is my list okay? Am I doing the right list? Do I need a better list? Do I need a different list? Do I need to take some stuff off, put some stuff on? Here's my list. And Jesus says, no, forget the list. You've got to be born again. Nicodemus responds in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asks, Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. You know, we look at that as a nonsensical answer question, but it's a perfectly legitimate question. Everybody knew, everybody knows how birth occurs. We don't need, you know, the doctor here to explain it to us. We know how it works. We know that there's a pregnant woman and she gives birth and then there's a baby. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is sitting here thinking, pregnant women, birth, baby. I need to be born again. What are we going to do? Take this old man and, and, and what? How can I be born again? I've already been born. I don't fit back into the womb. What in the world does this mean? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Think about that verse. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Think about this. Jesus is telling him, you had an earthly, a fleshly birth. At some point in time, you were born in the flesh. That which is of the flesh is flesh. But you must be born a second time to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and that second birth has to be a spiritual birth. Think about this. We're going to come back to this in just a second. Nicodemus responds, How can this be? Nicodemus asks. And finally, we do get to the question that Jesus asked that we're actually going to talk about today. (laughs) You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. You are the person responsible for instructing the nation of Israel, and you don't understand what I'm saying? How many of you think that Jesus is being a little unfair with Nicodemus? I mean, Nicodemus has not read Paul. Okay, He hasn't read the book of Romans. He hasn't read Ephesians. 
He doesn't have Christ's teachings. He doesn't have any of the New Testament. And Jesus comes up with this rather odd idea about being born again. And now Jesus is chastising him. You're the teacher? You're the teacher and you don't understand these things. The obvious inference is that Nicodemus ought to have known what Jesus is talking about right now without Jesus explaining it to him. How many of you really think that Nicodemus would know that? Hmm? If he knows the Old Testament, he didn't read Isaiah. How about Ezekiel? Let's start with Ezekiel 36. Not 36? I thought it was 26. Oh, well. The prophet Ezekiel says, actually God speaking through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Who is the operator, the one acting in this sentence? I, it's God speaking. I will do these things. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your, all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Who is the actor in this paragraph? God. Let me ask the question again. Who is the actor in this paragraph? It is God. Who is the object being acted upon? The Jewish people. What we see here is the idea of God in a miraculous fashion changing the heart of an individual so that that individual can then do the will of God. And we're going to look at a few more of these passages in just a moment. If you're a Pharisee, what do you think of this passage? Think about that for a moment. If you're a Pharisee, what do you think about this passage? What? It's going to occur at some time in some manner, but I don't think they have any idea. Maybe sometime in the future it's going to happen. Somebody else had a comment. They probably even thought to a point that they were obeying the Spirit because they were being careful to keep the laws. They get down to the bottom about being careful to keep the laws. So obviously everything above that has occurred, or I wouldn't have been careful to keep the laws. That's an interpretation. Uh huh. Somebody else. They were, they were doing their sacrifices. Were they doing the sacrifices? Some of them were, yeah. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. But they were doing it with an unclean, a stony, uh, what other words are used here? Heart. Why do we know that? If I have, if I am living a life of pride, okay, what I want is to show that I'm better than fill in the group with the blank with what other, other group that's over there. You know, it can be the Baptist, the Methodist, the family next door, the class next door, the pagans down the street, whoever it is, I want to be able to show that I'm better than they are, and I want the world to know that I, I, I am better because I did something. We get into the New Testament and we talk about grace. 
We talk about grace being God's unmerited favor given to us. And the first logical thing when you hear about this is, why wouldn't everybody accept this? I mean, it's a free gift of God. Why doesn't everybody just say yes? Because our pride doesn't want to be humbled to have God being the actor and we being the object. I want to be the actor. I want to be the master of my own fate. I want to be able to stand and say, I'm better than you. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They don't like these kinds of phrases. They don't like these kinds of verses because... It shows God doing the work and not them. And that's hard to fake. And if you do the things in this verse, where is the basis for pride? Where is the basis for standing up and saying, I'm better than you? Now, do we have pride? Yes. Do we have it in the Christian church today? Yes. Do we have Christians that stand up and say, yes, I'm better than fill in the blank with their favorite group? Yes. Are they wrong? Yes. I've always wondered, if grace is the free gift of God to everyone, why doesn't everybody just take it? Because our pride won't let them. I've used this illustration before, but before, and I think it's kind of cute, so I'll use it again. You know, I've always wrestled with my kids, you know, when they're little. When they get big, I can't handle them. But, you know, I, I wrestle with them. And at some point, I don't know where I made this up, but years, years ago, I made this thing up, okay? If I've got you pinned down, if you kiss me, I'll let, you, I'll let go, okay? If you kiss me, I'll let go. Every time. So even today, I'll walk up behind one and I'll grab them and I'll say, you know how to get out, right? Certain children at certain times wouldn't kiss me. We're talking about children that are this big who don't have a chance in the world of breaking my grip, but they won't do it. Why won't they do it? Wasn't worth it. They liked where they were. I don't know. Their pride kicks in. Their pride, their strong will kicks in and says, no. And you know what? I just held on tighter. <laughs> if all we have to do is accept the free grace that God bestows upon us, why wouldn't we do it? Because we're Pharisees and we have pride and we want to be in control. The Pharisees had constructed a religion that put them totally in control, put them in a seat of influence, put them as the standard of society and Jesus was coming in and poking a hole in their system that they had created. Yes. We still have that problem. Without question, we still have that problem. Right. If you are a religious person, a religious Jew, and you are studying this passage in the book of Ezekiel, you are studying it, what you're going to do if you're a righteous person is you're going to get on your knees and you're going to say, please God, clean me. Please God, free me from my impurities and my idols. Please God, give me a new heart so that I can do and follow your law. You're not going to say, oh, forget that. I'll go straight to the end and do my own thing. 
which is what they were doing. Let's keep going. Amazing, isn't it? Deuteronomy 30, 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay? We are told to do that. Here we're told that God will do something to our heart he will circumcise our heart so that we can do that. Huh. Why would God tell us to do something that we cannot do until he does something to us? Did I, answer that? Did I ask that question correctly? Why would God command us to do something that we're incapable of doing without his work in our life? Come on, this really isn't a complicated question. It was the plan from the beginning? Why? Why was it a plan? He gave us a choice. We chose the wrong path. And at that point, he wants us to know, he wants us to know that we cannot do it without him. Okay, nation of Israel, that's where we are here in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, nation of Israel, go out there and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, yes, and love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't do it. I can do it for you. I can change your heart to allow you to do it. We talk about the purposes of the law given in the Old Testament. And we talk about a variety of different purposes, one of which is to reveal the righteous will of God. And I believe that's true. I believe God constructed the universe to work in a proper way, in a particular way. And when we follow God's law, it works. But in our fallen state, we have another purpose of the law, and that is to show us our inadequacy to follow the law. We are born in iniquity. We have a sin nature. We have no desire to follow God's law. Even if we did desire to follow God's law, we wouldn't do it. Because it's against our nature. So God can stand up there and say, this is what you need to do. Now, go try to do it. What he wants us to do is to come back to him and say, God, I can't do it. And God will say, great, lesson one, passed. You can't do it, but I can do it through you. God wants us to live a life of dependence upon him. He wants to be the one to circumcise the heart. He wants to be the one that changes us. He wants to be the one to give us the new life. Why, Nicodemus, are you surprised when I tell you that you must be born again? Why are you surprised when I tell you that God has to work a miracle in you to give you a new heart, a new life, so that then you can do my will and live a righteous life? Why are you surprised? You're the teacher of Israel, you should know these things. But you start down the wrong path. You start down the path of I'm going to do it. And this is a different path. And you get too far down the path of I'm going to do it. And you can no longer even see this particular path. Let's see if we have one more. Jeremiah 30, verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Once again, who is the actor? God. Who is the object? The people. You must be born again, Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus, how much did you contribute to your first birth, your fleshly birth? The answer is not much at all. I mean, you were there. It happened. (laughs) Voila. So Nicodemus, for your second birth, for your being born again, for your spiritual birth, why do you think keeping these hundreds and hundreds of laws are going to produce a clean heart, a new heart, a circumcised heart, a changed heart? Why do you think that? You can only get life, a type of life, from somebody who has it. Good observation. And that's the point of this lesson. The point of this lesson is Nicodemus should have known these things. I don't think Jesus was being cruel to Nicodemus. I think Jesus was pointing out to Nicodemus that you, the Pharisees, and he was a, I mean, I'm going to say nice things about Nicodemus. I like Nicodemus. Nicodemus at least came to the right person to ask the questions. Okay? I like Nicodemus. But Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, the whole ruling council, the whole pharisaical movement has gone down the wrong path. It is a path of moralism. Me changing my outward behavior so that I will find favor with God, so God will bless me, and I'll look better than the guy next door. And isn't that what's really important? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Slowly, slowly. You must be born again. Let me go ahead and finish reading this passage. Please. At that moment in time, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, uh-huh. who among the population were, would you consider to have been born again or to have been in a right relationship with God? Well, I can't give you a list, okay? But we do know that they existed. If you remember the sermon from last week, when the infant Jesus was brought to the temple, okay, there were individuals at the temple waiting for the Messiah. Their hearts were right. They were ready. Okay? I'm making this up right now, okay? We know... I'm not making all of it up, but the conclusion... Okay, we know that there, we, we know all about the Pharisees because they're mentioned. We know about the Sadducees who were the more liberal religious groups. We know about these people over here that have run-ins with Jesus. I believe that there were Jews at the time who were eagerly waiting the Messiah with the proper heart. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, we don't, we don't talk about those, but we do have pictures in the Scripture of people who responded to Jesus well because they had been prepared. Their hearts had been prepared by the understanding of the Scripture. Now, having said that, they are still under the Old Covenant. They are being righteous before God to the covenant that God has given to them. And we've had long discussions in here before, you know, about the sacrificial system and will it save you? And the answer is no. But being faithful to God produces God's blessing in your life. The mere act of slicing the throat of an animal and plopping it down on the altar, that mere act doesn't do anything for me. And that's why the prophets finally say, why do you keep doing this if your hearts are all mixed up? But... If my heart is right and I'm doing what God tells me to do with a right heart, 
then it is a virtuous act. It does produce the forgiveness of the sin up to that point. We're off into the book of Hebrews now. It does produce what it was supposed to produce. So there were people who were living a right relationship with God as Jewish people. They still needed the gospel. Right. And even today, we have uh, discussions about that sometime. In fact, Abigail and I had a discussion about that last week. She read uh, George Bush's new book, and there's a discussion in there that he has with Billy Graham about being born again. And she came to me and said, Billy Graham, just tell George Bush you don't have to be born again. Is that what it just said? Because he mentions his wife was just born a Christian. And I made the comment. There are people who have a Damascus Road experience. You know, God whacks it up the side of the head and says, you, you're born again. Okay, I am born again. There are other people who, over time, little by little, gradually move into that. And it's like, oh, I am, even though I can't say, you know, on Thursday at 12 o'clock, it happened. God does it in mysterious ways, and, you know, I was raised a good Southern Baptist, and you needed to have that at, you know, on Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock, I was knocked off the horse experience. And there were people who just didn't have that. Okay? God will do, God will work in people's hearts. What's important is that it produces the fruit that that new life has with it. Let's read a little bit more and we'll be done. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but still your people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? I've, Nicodemus, I've been telling the people the easy stuff. How would you understand the hard stuff if you don't even understand Ezekiel and Deuteronomy and these verses that you've had forever. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. I don't think he raised his hand at that that point, but I think there was kind of an indication. uh, That's me. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And we'll do verse 16 just to say we did it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus, we don't really know what question Nicodemus wanted to ask because Jesus didn't wait for the question. He just gave him the answer that he needed. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is somewhat dumbfounded. How, how, how do I do that? And he says, you don't do it. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Y'all remember the story, right? The nation of Israel was grumbling against God again. And God sent snakes amongst them that were killing them. Okay? Just by the hundreds. The people repented. Nothing like a good snake to get you to repent. So they made a bronze serpent and they put it up on a stick. And anybody who looked at the bronze serpent would be healed. It happens to be the symbol that we have today of doctors, right? The looking at the, that which had been lifted up would save you. Now, we know later they turned that into an idol. So it had to be destroyed because human beings will worship anything. In the same way, the Son of Man, God, Son, Jesus, is going to be lifted up. 
and anyone who looks on him will be saved. For God so loved the world. Where does it start? Who is the actor? God. For God so loved the world. Why? Why did he love the world? I have to admit, that's the question I've never really got a good answer to. Okay? Why he would put up with us in the first place. I understand, I understand Noah and wiping people off the planet for being unrighteous. I understand that kind of stuff. Why would he love us? He loves us because it is his nature to love. God is love. He loves us because it is his nature to love. And we were an object to demonstrate that nature on. For God so loved the world. What does it say? That he gave his one and only son. I have two sons. And some days we get along well and some days we don't. But even on the bad days, okay, I'm not giving them for any of y'all. Sorry. You're toast. It's just not going to happen. Why would I do that? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. It took a better blood. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the phrase that he likes to use, is what allows us to be born again. Nicodemus's question, what does this mean? What does being born again mean? It means believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting for your salvation in him and his finished work and not in any list of rules that you could possibly make up. Conclusion, being morally good will never save us. It won't. Why not? Well, there's some practical reasons. First off, none of us are morally good enough. You can get into heaven by good works, okay? All you have to do is never sin from the day you're born till the day you die. And you're in. Christ did it. Don't try it. If you did that, you could get into heaven by your good works, but you cannot do it because we were born with a sin nature. We were born in iniquity. We inherited it from our father, Adam. Therefore, none of us can be morally good enough. We can be morally superior to the guy next door, We can be morally superior to some other group of people as long as we use some other group as the standard, we can be good people. There are pagans that do wonderful things. Go ahead. He didn't. But we've got to stop somewhere. <laughs> but, comma, we are called to be morally good. We are told to do that which God tells us to do. But if we're basing our salvation upon it, we are in deep trouble. What was that verse earlier in Ezekiel? I'll do this to you, I'll do this to you, I'll do this to you, so you will have a desire to do the law, the will of God. We are supposed to do what we're told to do. In order to be saved, we need a new life.
This new life only comes by being born again. At some point in your life, it could be a knock off your horse on the road to Damascus experience. It could be a gradual thing. But at some point in your life, you need to acknowledge that you are different than you were because of the work of Jesus Christ. And the bottom one is the answer to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you, of Israel, and you don't know these things. We are given the job of spreading the gospel. And we, too, are to understand and know what that means. We are to share it with other people. We are to pass it on to our families, our friends, our church members. We need to understand the gospel. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we oftentimes fall into the category of, as long as I look better than fill in the blank with your favorite group, I'm okay. It's like I've said before. Sometimes I get to the point as a parent where I'm not really concerned with my, parent, my children being good as long as they're just quiet about it. And sometimes we begin to think of, I don't care if people are really saved as long as they're nice about it. No, that's not the criteria. Being nice, being morally good is not the criteria. You must be born again. They're coming after us. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you provide that which we are unable to provide ourselves, that you provided your Son because of your love for us. I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts, remove the idols from our hearts, soften our hardened hearts so that we may worship you with clean hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.